Good morning, Gateway. We're going to do something a little bit different, uh, and if you've never seen this before, it's really different. Uh, it's a tradition that we started over at North Shore Baptist, where uh, a couple times throughout the year we have what we call a tag team sermon. And what we're going to do is for the summer this morning, we're going to close out First Timothy, uh, ending in chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to take the first part of those verses, and then uh, Caleb and Mike are going to come up and finish it. Um, so don't worry, we're not each preaching independent 30-minute sermons. Uh, we're, we're hopefully putting our, all of ours together to give you one full sermon. So uh, that being stated, let me pray for us, and uh, let us, as we pray, be mindful that we want God to be the one in, in charge, not us. Okay, so, Father, thank you for a beautiful day outside. Thank you for a full house in church today. Lord, thank you for this family. Thank you for every soul that you've brought here this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction manual that teaches us how to live and how to do so rightly. And Lord, as we look at this final charge that you give to Timothy, Lord, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, reconstruct the way that we think, the way we feel, the way that we act, and conform it to that of Christ. Lord, help us to, uh, as we read, as we hear your word, uh, give your word the respect that it demands, and uh, may we submit to it and have it engrafted into our beings. Lord, we hand ourselves over to you, our congregation over to you, our entire beings over to you, and ask you to have your way with us in Christ's name, amen. If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. I will be taking verses 11 and 12, and it reads, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The French physicist Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. That vacuum was placed there by God with intentionality and was designed to drive us to the Savior. The problem is that in its determination to be satisfied, our sin nature that loves to combine with it and confuse it attempts to fill it with counterfeit substitutes. Make no mistake, that vacuum is determined to be filled and will forever be seeking satiation. The question is whether or not we are going to fill it with that which it was designed to be filled with or whether we will settle or seek for other things that are more effortless and counterfeit substitutes that only leave us empty and wanting more. Just prior to verses 11 and 12 of 1 Timothy 6, we observe Paul point out in verse 9, those who desire to be rich. He says that they, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation because of that desire, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
I remember as a kid uh, constantly being chastised over the weekends by my parents because Saturday morning I would watch TV all morning. Their command was, stop watching too much TV. My internal response then was, if I stop watching TV, what else am I going to do? Well, that was because there was a drive in me to do something, to be occupied, to satisfy impulses, to be entertained, to be engaged in something more than just staring at the wall to pass time. Unfortunately, the command to stop doing the lesser thing was rarely accompanied by the offer to do a greater thing. The command was simply just stop. Fortunately, God gets our nature and he knows better than that. And he knows that we are a driven people. He knows that if we stop one thing, we don't just stop. We will, by nature, redirect our drive to something else. Therefore, he gives us that alternative. And, of course, it's going to be something that he designed us for to begin with that accommodates the image in which we were originally created. So, in contrast to the one who desires to be rich, Paul says, but as for you... O man of God. Immediately, he is separating the one he is talking to from the one he was talking about. You, man of God, as opposed to man of flesh, man who is no longer natural but who is spiritual, man to whom the things of the Spirit are no longer foolishness but instead make sense now, flee these things. Flee. It's a command. It's written in the present tense, active voice, and it is imperative. Why does that matter? In the present tense, because he's telling us to flee, it's not something that you do at one point in history and then it's taken care of. Because it's in the present tense, it's telling us to do this over and over and over and over until we go home to be with the Lord. It is always when we can call that moment now. Active. It's not done for us. It's not done by assistance. It is done by us. It's a choice that we have to make, a determination that we have to make. And it's imperative. Do it. It's not a suggestion. It's not a conditional. If you do this, then that will happen. He just says, do it. Flee these things. Well, what things? It appears that because of the immediately preceding context, Paul is at least referring to the pursuit of riches. Remember, we are naturally driven. Our natural drive combined with sin nature will jettison us into filling our God-shaped vacuum with anything but its authentically missing puzzle piece, which is Christ himself. Here, Paul is telling us as believers to pursue this, not that. Pursue the things of the Spirit and not the things of the world. Your energies will drive you to do something, and they're not going to go away. Redirect those energies from engaging in something that is going to hurt you to something that is going to benefit you and all of those around you. Verse 11 continues, pursue. Flee that, pursue this. Again, also written in the present tense, active and imperative. It's not an action that we perform at some moment in time, and, it, and then we're good to go. This is an action that is ongoing, and it means to hunt, to look for, to seek out, to run after. Flee from the bad stuff, flee from your obsession with this world, and pursue, rather, spiritual things. 
What are we to pursue? He tells us righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Well, that's all good and nice, but if we don't know what those things are, we still don't know exactly what we're supposed to pursue. So let's biblically define those things. Righteousness. This is the character or quality of being right or just. Contrary to our culture's definition of righteousness, true biblical righteousness is attained or attainable by obedience to any law or by any merit of man's own. The righteousness that we're talking about here is not obtained that way. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, those who are in Christ become the righteousness of God. It's not a result of my works. It's a result of who I am and who I am in. Righteousness is the result of being in Christ. It is not the result of doing the right thing. Rightness or righteousness results from eternal and internal change through redemption, not through externally doing the good things and avoiding the bad. How then do we pursue it? Well, we grow in our trust in Christ and it will automatically be produced. It's an automatic byproduct of developing that relationship with Christ. We have all known folks who do all the religious stuff at church. They attend meetings, they lead studies and fellowships, they pay their tithes, etc., but are still as impatient and unkind as ever. Heart wasn't changed. Actions may have changed. Righteousness results, though, from supernatural heart change through right fellowship with Christ and is then manifest in action. Right activity does not bring the Holy Spirit. Rather, the Holy Spirit brings right activity. Godliness. Now, my first question was, how is righteousness and godliness different from each other? Why are they both listed here? They do play hand in hand, but they are different. While righteousness is right action that results from devotion to Christ rather than devotion to right action itself, Godliness is that actual reverence and devotion to God that in turn produces the righteousness. Righteousness is the action. Godliness is the devotion that results in the action. If one is godly, righteousness will be the manifestation. And if one is truly righteous, it is the result of godliness. We pursue godliness by seeking the kingdom of God first. By knowing God and by knowing him increasingly more through reading his word, praying to him, and ascertaining more knowledge and wisdom by fellowshipping with him and learning from fellow believers. Faith. Defined as a firm persuasion or a conviction of what is heard, it contrasts to having faith in man. This faith according to the scriptures, has three main elements contained in it. First of all, a firm conviction that produces a full acknowledgement of God's revelation or truth. We plant our feet, square our shoulders, and take a stand that God's word is true. Whether I like it or not, <laughs> whether I understand it or not, that's where I, I, I plant my feet. Secondly, it's a personal surrender to him. God, whatever you will, use me as you wish. Number three, it is a conduct inspired by such surrender. Again, it manifests itself in holiness, in righteousness. 
James tells us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Rhetorically, no. But someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? While we know that works do not save, but rather it is the faith that saves, the way that we know that the faith of which we speak is authentic is that it manifests itself in righteous behavior. We pursue faith by getting to know the object of that faith more intimately and by stepping out in faith by taking the initiative to obey God's commands in spite of our fears and then watching him deliver. Pursue love. Uh, That love is agape. It's unconditional love that manifests in the ways described in 1 Corinthians 13. It is patient. It is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It rejoices not with wrongdoing, but with truth. It bears, it believes, it hopes, and endures all things. Notice nothing was stated there about having warm fuzzies. It is the word used to describe the attitude that God has towards his son and towards the human race, such as in John 3.16. Vines describes it this way. Agape can be known only from the actions it prompts. God's love is seen in the gift of his son, But obviously, this is not the love of complacency or affection. That is, it was not drawn out by any excellency in its objects. Rather, it was an exercise of the divine will in deliberate choice made without assignable cause, save that which lies in the nature of God himself. We love not because someone has elicited it or solicited it. We love because we internally make the choice to extend it. We pursue this by being educated in what the scriptures define as the nature of Christ, by being indwelt by the Holy Spirit who makes it possible for us to truly comprehend and exercise agape and choosing to manifest this love even in the most challenging of circumstances with the most challenging of people. Pursue steadfastness. This is really what we could call endurance and is defined as bearing up under courageously and under suffering. We pursue this by staying with the program, by continuing to obey God's call to carry out a task, not by turning to sinful solutions like divorce, cheating on taxes, alcohol and drugs, or even exploding emotionally or giving someone the cold shoulder. It hangs in there for the long haul until God says otherwise and does so Christianly, limiting itself to the characteristics of agape. Finally, we pursue gentleness. Better known to us as meekness, it is not just an outward behavior, but it is first an inward grace of the soul. It is the first and chiefly, it is first and chiefly an attitude towards God that in turn manifests towards people. We pursue this by reminding ourselves regularly that his dealings with us are always good and should be accepted without disputing or resisting. Greek Greek linguistic trench notes that this meekness, being first of all meekness before God, is also such in the face of men, even of evil men, 
out of a sense that these, with the insults and injuries which they may inflict, are permitted and employed by him for the chastening and purifying of his elect. Paul continues in verse 12, commanding the believer to fight the good fight of faith. What is that? Well, faith is ideational. Flesh is sensate. Faith is acting on thoughts and understanding. Flesh is acting on impulses and physical appetites. We are warned in Galatians 5 that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed, they are at war with each other. Internally, the redeemed person has a constantly raging war inside of them and a passive approach to winning that war in favor of the spirit will not work. You have to fight. You win that fight by pursuing those items identified in verse 11. The Pauline command here is intentionally full of athletic imagery. While fighting the good fight is the process of striving for victory over the opposition, taking hold of eternal life conveys the idea of a prize for which the athlete reaches. Eternal life is ultimately the end game of our Christian walk and our Christian life. While it cannot be earned by our righteousness, for we have none on our own, the manifestation of righteousness in our lives lends credence that we are indeed on the road to salvation. Finally, Paul's description of this eternal life of which Timothy made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses is in keeping with Timothy's public testimony to serve Christ. Timothy did this and was baptized in Lystra in front of God's people and in front of God's enemies. Thus, Paul charges Timothy before God to maintain a consistent lifestyle that will bring no reproach on Christ or on his church. To summarize this in my own words, Timothy, you are a man of God, so flee from things that will certainly damage your relationship with God. Pursue the virtues. Do so aggressively, competitively, so as to win. And make sure that all those witnesses who heard you confess Christ as your Lord never have reason to stray or doubt or mock by staying true to that confession. Amen. <clears throat> Several years ago, I attended a high school graduation. And tis the season, it comes to memory. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have attended a healthy number of high school graduations. In fact, for seven years, I was a youth minister, and at one point in my youth group at North Shore Baptist Church, we had 23 different high schools uh, present in our group. So I have attended a healthy number of graduations in my day. And I will say that at this one particular graduation that I attended, I expected what was coming for the most part. I anticipated the sappy and self-congratulatory valedictorian speech. I expected the class clown to make a fool of himself in some way or another, but there was something that took place that I had no idea it would be coming. In fact, it was not a student that made a fool of himself that day, but it was the principal who made a fool of himself that day. This highly educated and proud schoolmaster stood there in front of all of his students from a specialized high school, and he gave them the following message. Now, I will say I do not have a perfect memory, and I did not record this event, so I'm working um, off of my limited memory, but here's a basic summary of what he said. He said, when you leave here, I want you to reject all authority in your life. 
Don't ever let anyone tell you what to do. Rules are artificial barriers that are set in place to limit your potential. When you get to college, I want you to break all of the rules. And when you get into the workplace, I want you to break all of the rules. And if somebody tells you no, they're just trying to hold you back. Just use them as inspiration to go beyond them. Break the rules. Break barriers. Something like that. You know what? I find this very interesting, but I guarantee that same principal would never, ever give those same instructions to his employees that work at the school. You know what, teachers? Break all the rules. You know what else? I guarantee that a couple of months later when they had incoming freshmen, that he did not stand in front of them and say, hey kids, as you come to the school, you know what I want you to do? I want you to break all of the rules and reject all authority. In fact, I guarantee that two months later when he addressed those new students incoming into that specialized high school, he would have said to them, you know what, kids, here are the rules, here's how you follow them, here's what you need to do in order to stay in the school, and if you break them, here are the penalties if you want to get expelled. Just break the rules and we'll kick you on out. This man's charge was not only ignorant, it was worthless. Had no value for those students, but today... Paul gives a charge to Timothy in these final words in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that are of immense value. A charge is a solemn command that's given from an authority figure. It's not quite the same thing as giving them marching orders. It's not like a long list of instructions. A charge is a forceful or emphatic call to carry out your responsibilities, responsibilities that you probably already know. Now, we begin at verse 13 with a charge from Paul to Timothy. And this final charge of 1 Timothy begins in verse 13 and concludes at the end of verse 16. Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the first half of that charge. And then Pastor Mike is going to walk through that second half of his charge with you. And then I'll come back up afterwards to close out the book. But for my portion of this charge, hear what Paul writes. He says, I charge you. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who is the testimony, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now our approach to this charge will be to examine the more obvious details first and then we're going to go through some of the more tough stuff that arises in verse 14. Notice first the audience of this charge. Paul does not say, Timothy, listen, I am charging you in front of everybody in your church. No, he doesn't say that. And he doesn't even say, Paul, I, or Timothy, I am charging you before your mother and your grandmother who are the ones who taught you the word of God and who led you to the Lord. He doesn't even say, I charge you before myself, an apostle, and your father in the faith. He doesn't say any of those things. No, he, he says there is one audience, Timothy, before whom I charge you. There is one individual to whom you are responsible. I charge you in the presence of God himself. All of the ministry that Timothy was to carry out was certainly for the benefit of various members of the church, but they are not the ones that he is required to please. They are not the one who, to whom Timothy must ultimately answer. They are not the ones who get to give him that charge or the ones who are able to grade him on his success. This charge was given by Paul in the presence of God and with God's blessing. 
It's an incredibly helpful reminder to us believers that each one of us has been given gifts, just like Timothy was given gifts. He was able to teach. He was able to lead. He was able to pastor that church in Ephesus. He was given gifts to build up the church. Likewise, you have been given gifts to build up the church. Some have been given specific responsibilities to serve. And whatever ministry that you have been given to you, you need to know that you are given that responsibility in the presence of God, before him and him alone. So do it to the glory of God. Do it for him. Uh, During COVID, I did a series of interviews with various pastors and missionaries. Uh, When we couldn't gather faithfully and regularly, we were trying to figure out, well, as pastors, like, what am I supposed to do now? How do I best care for the flock right now? And one of the things that I decided to do was just record conversations through YouTube of various pastors and friends that I have in the ministry and to see how we could best love our people and lead them and instruct them well during this time. And one of the people I reached out to was a missionary friend, Kevin Cooney, who's serving the Lord in Indonesia. And I asked Kevin in uh, the very end of our conversation, the last question of the interview, I said, Kevin, let me just ask, what keeps you there? What keeps your eye focused on the mission at hand? And I want you to listen to his answer. This is a man, similar to Timothy, serving the Lord in a hard place. And he said, I have found tremendous encouragement through fixating on biblical theology. The more that I focus on what the Father and Son and Holy Spirit before creation had and what they shared in and what they now share with this creation, it compels me to want to participate in that. Theology exists because God is generous, because he decided to share what he has and what he has enjoyed for all eternity. He created the whole world in which to share himself. He compels me. He urges me. He blesses me. And he fuels me with this. I would be at home already if I tried to run on compassion for the people. I would do you a great disservice if I shared with you some of the internal thoughts that I have had for some of the people we are ministering to. Love for the people won't get you very far. But love for God will sustain you through trials and hardships. And it is his love for those people that he gives us a taste of and that encourages us to move forward. That's how he stayed there. That's how this man has faithfully worked in one of the hardest missionary fields in the world. What about you? Well, whether you're working in music or childcare or preaching or cleaning or caring for your own children or clocking into work on Tuesday morning, you have one boss. You have one person for whom you are striving to please. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. You are charged in the presence of God himself to carry out your calling. When Kevin Cooney answered this question, it wasn't the answer I really expected. But it revealed that this man realized, I have one person before whom I am charged and one person who I seek to please. If you seek to please only those around you, then you'll wait until there are no eyes on you, and then you will fall short. If you are simply seeking to please others, then you will find an occasion to have a disagreement with another and then decide to stop serving in one way or another. You are charged in the presence of God to carry out your calling, and that should motivate you to labor hard and to love thoroughly and to live deliberately for him. 
It is interesting to note the specific things that Paul highlights about the Father and the Son at this point in the text. He says of the Father that he is the one who gives life to all things. Now, why does he highlight that? It's probably designed to be a reminder to Timothy. Timothy, look, the reason you're breathing at this very moment is because God gave you life. Remember that. And if he wanted to take you right now, he could do that. He has you here intentionally, which indicates purpose. He has a desire for you to carry out your calling now so that you might serve his kingdom well. And notice of Jesus, the primary thing that is highlighted is his good confession that was made before Pilate. Now, Pastor Steve just spoke about the nature of Timothy's confession that he publicly made. That confession is that Jesus is Lord. Now, for you and I, we point to another. But Jesus, before Pilate, pointed to himself. He said, yes, I am the king. And you don't know anything about my kingdom. And you have no power to put me to death. You have no power at all except for the power that was given to you. Jesus is declaring before Pilate, yes, I am Lord. Now, I'm not going to dig too deep into what Pastor Steve already spoke about. However, I do want you to notice that Paul is not commanding Timothy to do anything that Jesus himself has not already done and done publicly and done in a situation of grave danger. Jesus made the good confession even though he knew that giving that answer to Pilate would definitely result in his crucifixion. Timothy's calling, and just like ours, is to imitate Christ. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 14 of our text today continues, To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now let's start at the end of this sentence and work our way backwards. It's interesting that the return of Christ is so often used in Paul's writings without specific language. Now, there are occasions when there is specific language, but so often Paul doesn't say much about the timing or what to expect. Paul doesn't tell Timothy a date. He doesn't give him some kind of a a code to determine the timing of Christ's return. He simply says that it's going to occur at the proper time. Anyone who claims to know the day or the hour they're selling you something. Uh, just this past week, I received a phone call from a young man who was part of a cult. He called from Queens and seems to be the birthplace of many modern cults. And this man called and he was explaining to me that revelation is being fulfilled in our sight right now and that he knows a prophet. And this prophet is the one who ate the scroll in revelation. And this man is telling us about the exact timing of Jesus' return. And we want you to come to a gathering and we want to tell you all about it so our prophet can share with you what God is speaking through him. And I begged that young man. I said, listen, I realize that you are caught up in this, but I plead with you, run away from this cult. And I plead with you to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is Jesus will return. But it's not going to happen on your timetable. In fact, every single time the Bible speaks about his return, it does so by speaking about its immediacy, its suddenness, as well as the shock that it will produce in all who are unaware. It uses imagery of everyone sleeping or working or being involved in other activities and being completely outside of the awareness that his return is coming that day. He will come, and when he does, the question that he asks is, Will you be ready? Which leads us to know to now to the most difficult part of the passage. Paul tells Timothy 
to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. Now, here's the toughest part of the text, to be honest, because the question is, what command is he talking about? Is this speaking about one of the Old Testament commands? It is He may be talking about one of the Ten Commandments, one of the Big Ten. Maybe he could be talking about the great commandment of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the commandment, and how are we to keep it unstained or defiled? Well, in order to best help you understand the answer to this question, I want to actually take you to another verse where similar wording can be found. That's going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. Paul writes, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now, what I want you to notice in that text, if you notice that, Notice that the things that he is writing, things is plural, command is singular. What things is Paul writing to him? He's writing the book of 1 Corinthians. The whole book he describes then with a singular command. This is my command to you. What is the command? 1 Corinthians is the command. Now we see Paul do the exact same thing with Timothy here in our text today. Paul is calling Timothy to carry out what command? The command of 1 Timothy. The whole book. I am calling you to do this without staining or defiling it. How do you do that? You do that through disobedience or laziness or inattentiveness to the word of God. Now we see the sentiment repeated in verse 20. Paul writes, O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That is how you stain it. You swerve away from what you know to be true in the gospel. You turn away from the truths that I have just presented. And you soak yourself in irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Timothy, stick to the truth. Stick to the word, and by doing so, you keep the command pure, and you guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Church, we are also called to live in obedience to the word of God that has been once for all delivered to the saints. So I want to close my time here with some questions. Are you guarding the good deposit? Are you keeping the commandment unstained and undefiled? By commandment, I mean the word of God. Are you coming before the word and are you living in such a way that God himself, the judge, the one who is actually going to see all of your heart and your mind, would he say you are keeping the command undefiled? Are you regularly repenting when you fall short and strive for obedience to the Lord when you fail, when you actually mess up and you see it? whether someone else calls it out in you or the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you are sinning, do you come before the Lord and say, God, I need forgiveness because I have fallen short. I have stained the command. I have defiled it with my actions. In Luke 18, 8, Jesus asked the question, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a good question. If he were to come today, would he come into this room and find faith? And I hope the answer to that is absolutely yes. But again, you are not living before ultimately just one another. Ultimately, the one who grades each one of us is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the ultimate question is whether or not you are in him. Church, 
We not only have a calling to keep the commandments, we not only have an example to follow in Jesus Christ who made the good, good confession, we have a God who promised that if we are in him, he will also keep us. And it's really important to see that my part of the text is not even one full sentence. There's a comma at the end of where I stop today. And that is really important because it is not your ultimate responsibility to keep yourself in the faith. If it was your responsibility, ultimately you and I would all fall away. If it all depended on you, you and I would all be doomed. We would be in hell. But what I want to do right now is I want to turn to Pastor Mike because what you're going to see is in his portion of this charge, the focus is no longer on Timothy himself. The focus turns to the one who is able to keep Timothy from stumbling and who is likewise able to keep you and I from stumbling. The one who carries us through our pursuit of holiness and righteousness that Pastor Steve talked about. The one who is able to lead us and shepherd us through faithfully, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Mike? Verse 15b, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Here the Apostle Paul, as he often does in 1 Timothy, breaks out into seemingly spontaneous praise and worship. But I think there is a purpose here, in addition to his heart-bursting federation of his Lord. I believe we can see Paul highlighting three aspects of God in these two verses. Number one, his authority. Number two, his holiness. And number three, his praiseworthiness. So number one, God's authority. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here Paul asserts the complete and utter omnipotence of God the Father. You see, God is in complete and total control of all things, everywhere and for all time. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a time a place, or a situation in which God the Father is not in 100% control. Amen? You see, God is in charge of all things. And in this verse, Paul, and we just heard it, is dealing specifically with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark 13.32, the Lord Jesus himself says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So we see here in 1 Timothy 6 that Paul is attributing to God the Father a position of complete and utter sovereignty over all that is, specifically and including, Jesus' triumphal return to the earth. And then he narrows down the focus to earthly kings and lords. Yes, God is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He ordains all that comes to pass in the rising of kingdoms, and the falling of kingdoms. And thus, all rulers unwittingly do his bidding. For instance, he calls wicked Assyria the rod of his anger. He says the staff in their hands is his fury. He uses their bloodlust to pour out his judgment upon Israel. And in the same way, God also refers to the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar as his servant 
when he attacked Judah. Listen to the testimony from Nebuchadnezzar's own mouth after being humbled by God for his arrogance. In Daniel 4:34 to 35, we read, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is the only true potentate, and he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. Number one, God's authority. Next we see in verse 16, Paul extols God's holiness or his uniqueness. The text read, God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. God is holy. We know that. He is like no created being. He cannot be compared to anything, and nothing can be rightly compared to him. Here in verse 16, under the aspect of God's holiness, Paul mentions three unique characteristics of God. Number one, his holy immortality. Number two, his holy sanctity. And number three, his holy invisibility. So number one, his holy immortality. God is everlasting. He, as the creator of all things, visible and invisible, is before all things. You see, he spoke the universe into existence. He created everything out of nothing. And created things like angels and human souls, things that will live forever, all had a beginning. God had no beginning. In Genesis 1-1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1.1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in Revelation 22.13, the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God had no beginning. God is the beginning. Now, we are immortal. We are. We will live forever spiritually. Uh, the, sla- the saved will live in an eternal paradise with Christ. The damned will live eternally in a place of eternal conscious punishment. Both are eternal states of being, that's true. But we are not wholly immortal because each human soul had a beginning. It had a starting point, which is called conception. Therefore, our eternity stems from somewhere outside of ourselves. Our eternity comes from God. You see, God is the fountain of eternity from which all eternal beings borrow their eternity from. 1 Timothy 6.15 says that God alone has immortality, and that's in and of himself. See, our finite minds cannot comprehend this. We can't understand it. What we see is causes and effects. You know, God is the first cause. Everything else, everything else is the effect of that first cause. But God had no cause. God has always been, and God will always be. God alone is holy, immortal. God's holy immortality. Next, under the heading of God's holiness, we see God's holy sanctity. You see, God dwells in unapproachable light. 
1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We read in Habakkuk 1.13 that the Lord is holy and his eyes are too pure to behold evil. See, oftentimes in Scripture, we know that light signifies purity, sinlessness. And this way, God the Father is unapproachable. Why? Because our iniquities have made a separation between us and a holy, sinless God. Isaiah 59.2. In Exodus 33.20, the Lord tells Moses that even Moses cannot see God's face and live. In Isaiah 6, you're all familiar with the story, we get a sneak peek into God's throne room in heaven. Now, as a side note, John 12 tells us that the Lord seated on the throne in Isaiah 6 and is in reality Jesus Christ. But the connection still applies here. You see, God the Son was so holy in Isaiah 6, so pure, so full of light, that the seraphim, the angels, used two of their six wings to cover their faces. You see, even the holy angels who've never sinned still cannot behold the face of God. How much less we sinful men and women. So with Isaiah, we rightly cry out, woe is me for I am undone. Because God dwells in unapproachable light. Number two was God's holy sanctity. And number three is God's holy invisibility. The text says, God whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, the Apostle John, in his first letter, in dealing with the brotherly love, says this in 1 John 4.20. He says, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. We all know what John's getting at there. We, we see the logic behind it. You show your love for God by the way you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. We've established that over and over again. But let's not miss the fact that John assumes his readers know that they can't actually see God. It's like the cult member that called Caleb. They're not hearing from God. And if anyone calls you and said, I saw God and he looks like this, Run. You see, God the Father is spirit, and he has no bodily form. But I think that it goes past our failure to behold him with our feeble senses. The problem is sin. Our problem is sin. John in his gospel gives us the solution to this problem. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at his Father's side, he has made him known. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we know that the answer to our sin problem is Christ. Amen? So in the verse, I can explain it this way. John says, no one has ever seen God the Father. However, the only God, the Son, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him the Father known. Do you understand what he's saying there? Literally, Jesus exegetes the Father. Now you see, we cannot know God the Father without knowing God the Son. Jesus himself says that in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, where he says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in Christ, we can boldly approach the unapproachable. In Christ, we can spiritually see the unseeable. Number three, God's holy invisibility. 
Okay, a quick review of what I've discussed so far. Back in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, Paul is praising God the Father. He's extolling his authority, and he's extolling his holiness, which includes immortality, utter sanctity, and invisibility. And then he's going to go on to show his praiseworthiness, which we'll touch upon at the close of my portion. But we all, this is made known to us in one way, in Christ. It was mentioned already. And it's amazing when we do this through the years, it sounds like we prepare together, but we don't. Very often I'm listening and I'm like, I'm going to touch upon that. I'm not going to say that because he said that. We all prepare as though we were in the same room. So we praise God for the leading of his spirit. So in Christ, we know God. We willingly submit to his authority in Christ. We live forever in Christ. We approach God in Christ and we see God in Christ. Christ has removed the barrier between his people and God. He has spanned the great chasm of sin for us, taking our sin upon himself on the cross, bearing his father's just wrath for our sin and giving us his perfect sinless record. We are justified in Christ, and in Christ we know God. But in a room this big, there's always a chance that some here may not be in Christ this morning. And without Christ, God's authority frightens you. God's holiness baffles you. His immortality dumbfounds you. He is unapproachable to you, and he is invisible to you. You see, your sin separates you from God. But there is a way of escape. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Run to him for the forgiveness of sins. Repent of your sins, especially the sin of attempting to earn favor with God by your works. Salvation is only by grace through faith in Christ. Run to Christ. You'll find that he's a better savior than you are a sinner. So in conclusion, and coming to my final point regarding 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, we see Paul is praising God the Father, as we know, first for his sovereignty in revealing Christ in the awaited second coming, and then for his authority, and then for his holiness, and then this leads us to our doxology this morning. Together with Paul, we say to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now we know that the Lord does not gain honor and dominion by our saying it or by our proclaiming it. But we as God's people aim to give him the praise and worship that is due his great name. So in Christ and in light of God's sovereignty and according to his holiness, we proclaim this morning his praiseworthiness. In closing, for me, please hear the words, the spirit-inspired words of Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, here we are at the conclusion of 1 Timothy. We have come now to the end of this book, six chapters that we have walked through for the last eight months, and the Lord has led us through step by step 
And I pray that the Lord has grown each one of us from it. Uh, We earlier considered verses 20 and 21, uh, considering the good deposit. And earlier, uh, we also already considered uh, in a previous passage, verses 17 through 19, regarding wealth, when we spoke about money. But there are a few words left, four words in particular, that we have not covered in the book of 1 Timothy, which I would like to close with you now. It's the final words of verse 21, the four words, grace be with you. Last night, uh, we were at dinner, and my four-year-old son was asked to pray for our dinner, Mordecai. And um, he did pray for us, and he said, God, please keep being God. And I asked that you would make it rain on us again, because it was raining outside on him earlier that day. And please keep us from dying. Amen. Wonderful. Uh, teaching him to pray. But one of the things he said was, God, please keep being God. Now, God's going to answer that prayer, of course, by saying, yes, I will keep being God. But it's interesting because he asked for that. And it's interesting here because Paul has already taught us that if we are in Christ, there is grace that is with us that cannot be taken away. But notice he still says, grace be with you. And this is what we call a benediction. Now, if you've been with us for very long, you'll note that at the end of our services, we typically have a verse that is a verse similar to this one from somewhere in the Bible where there is a benediction spoken over you. And generally, it will have something to do with the proclamation that grace would be with you. Now, the promises that we have in Scripture is knowing that it will be. That does not decline the reality or minimize the fact that we still see, typically, in the Bible, that there are blessings spoken over one another. This blessing does not originate from Paul. He is not a magician capable of providing grace. He is not a a priest of the Roman Catholic Church that is able to supposedly dispense grace to you. Those things don't exist. That's not real. No, he can't give grace. God alone can give grace. But as saying this, what Paul is saying, and what I say to you now, is that may God give you grace. It's drawing on that very clear blessing that we see from Aaron in the Old Testament. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face shine upon you and give you peace. That final word here for may grace be with you, that word is plural. It's not just for Timothy. He's saying, may the Lord have grace that is dispensed over the entire church there at Ephesus. But as readers of the word of God, that blessing is actually also extended to us. May the grace of God be with you. This entire book was delivered to us. Although it was originally written for this local church, it was certainly also intended for our readership today. So now as we bring this book to a close, may the God who gave grace to Timothy and who gave grace to the church at Ephesus, may that God also give grace to carry out our calling every day. Grace be with you. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much. 
for all of the good words that we have heard from Timothy. We thank you for the commandments. We thank you for the clarifications. We thank you for the instruction about how the church is to work and the warnings against false teachers and the promises of God's grace that are presented to us. And God, we ask you that today as we close out this book and as we have heard the commandment and the calling and the commissioning of Timothy, this charge that was presented to him, I pray, God, that we likewise would see our charge before the Lord and that we would truly pursue him, that we would flee all that is evil and that we would run to that which is good and that we would do so motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who is holy and the one who is returning one day. We pray this all in his precious and holy name. Amen.